Welcome to the Beyond Ordinary Women podcast. Every two weeks, we post podcast versions of one of our free training videos, or you can access our videos now at beyondordinarywomen.org. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome to the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries Zoom event entitled Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. I'm your host. Sharifa Stevens, and I am esteemed to be a member of the Beyond Ordinary Women team. Beyond Ordinary Women is purposed to prepare Christian women for leadership. Our website includes videos, podcasts, and articles helpful to anyone growing in leadership. Our website link will be and is already available on your chat screen beyondordinarywomen.org. Today's topic is biblical manhood and womanhood. Like I said, Dr. Guan, um, I would love to give her bio to you, but I also want to say that she's one of my favorite people and a mentor of mine. And the reason why I'm here today is in part because of her profoundly compassionate tutelage. Gotta say that. Dr. Sandra Glan is a professor of media arts and worship at Dallas Theological Seminary, where she earned her master's degree. Her PhD is in aesthetic studies from the University of Texas at Dallas, where one of her exam fields was the history of ideas about gender. She is the author, co-author, or general editor of more than 25 books several of which explore sexuality and gender. She is the wife of one husband. They have celebrated 41 years. The mother of one adult daughter and owner of two cats and a door of dark chocolate. So let's welcome Dr. Sandra Glan. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you, Sharifa, that was really kind. I tell the truth. I tell the truth. So the way we're going to format um, our discussion today is we're going to have about 20-25 minutes of just discussion between you and me. And in that time, um, you, the audience, will provide us with your questions and then the remainder of our time will be question and answer. Hopefully that makes sense. We're going to dig right in. So the first question that I have for you is what makes womanhood or manhood biblical? Yeah, that's a really great question because even how we frame the question can have very different results. For example, if we look at sex-specific commands um, or role-specific commands, let's say we just only look at commands to wives and the word submit stands out. If we extrapolate that to be for all women and then conclude that that's what women were made for, then we get to a very different conclusion than if we go back to Genesis 1 and say, first of all, what is gender? And then mm -hmm. what are the commands given us? What were we created for? So yeah. gender has to be differentiated from sex. So synonyms for sex are male and female. But synonyms for gender are masculine and feminine. And masculinity and femininity is the social outworking of our embodiment as male and female. 
So, but that's gonna you, you you might have to back up and unpack that a little bit yeah. more. So so when we say that gender is socially constructed, a lot of times Christians immediately go, "Whoa, gender is innate," mm -hmm. and the two are not opposition. We recognize that. There are brain differences in men and women. There are clearly biological differences in men and women. There are hormonal differences, all of which affect behavior. But what we're saying is masculine and femininity is the social behavior that results from embodiment, okay? And so what that means is there's a pretty wide spectrum of how that manifests itself. For example, when we go to Kenya and we see women on the top of a hut, with a hammer or some kind of implementation, they're fixing the roof because it's right. a woman's job. It's women's work to fix a roof in Kenya. If I see a female roofer in America, my first thought is not women's work or femininity. Okay. And that's what we mean by saying it's socially constructed in that it looks very different in different places. And so if we're looking at the Bible, instead of saying how do men or women act, because well, let me, let's just take that a minute. Let's say if, right. we, if we go to the Bible and say, how do men and women act? We can say, well, in the book of Acts, it's the men serving the widows. Therefore, serving tables must be men's work. Mm -hmm. or you could go to Proverbs 31, and instead of going straight to the domestic stuff, we could go straight to she's buying and selling property. Right. And her husband is working in the gate. Therefore, it must be a woman's job to provide for her husband. And the man is not obligated to do. You see what I'm saying? Like, yeah. and that comes back to your question of what is biblical. So to what even, is it? What is it to even approach that question? We have to talk about how do you read literature? Right? Yeah. Because you, if you, it, what I just did, you can make the Bible say anything. Right? Yeah. If you just pick and choose the chat, the verses you want with men or women doing certain things can, uh, yeah, uh, you can make it say anything. So we're looking at, at how are words used? If I picked up a copy of, oh, let's go to John Grisham, the firm, and I open it up and I go, where should I go for Christmas, Christmas vacation? And my finger falls on Memphis. That is not a good approach to literature. And yet, how many people have done that in their quiet time, right? God, show me what I'm supposed to do. You know, Judas hanged himself or whatever silly way we approach the text. I know, it's ridiculous. And sometimes it works out great, but sometimes it's devastating. And that's, that's not how we read literature, right? So you're and, talking about hermeneutics. This, bingo. in order to understand what, what is distinctly, what is biblical manhood and womanhood, you really have to talk about how you approach the Bible as a whole to talk about manhood and womanhood specifically. Exactly. And hermeneutics is the fancy four-syllable word that we could totally comprehend. It's basically the science of how do we do literature and particularly biblical mm -hmm. literature, literature. So the first question then to say, if, if masculinity and femininity or manhood and womanhood is rooted in our embodiment, what are the first actions God calls man and woman to do? Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Okay. Mm -hmm. and they have to have each other to do that. They have to do that together. And the idea of filling the earth, we don't just find that in Genesis. Again, in our hermeneutics, we look at the whole picture and we don't just have Genesis and the, the garden isn't the whole picture because in the garden, you don't have a, a world that's populated 
with men and women. But in the, in the eschaton of the kingdom, we do. And we want, God wants, his command is for us to fill the earth. Why? So it's filled his glory. And it's filled with worshipers from every tribe and tongue and nation. It's got beautiful diversity. We see massive diversity in the plant and animal kingdom, but we don't see it in humanity until humans populate the earth. And mm-hmm. So the first thing that's manly and womanly, according to God, is to fill the earth and subdue it, okay? Manage it, fill it. And, and the other thing that we have to look at is when we look at the whole picture of what are men and women called to do and called to be, we have to factor in that the law of Moses only gives us training wheels, but it's not the ideal. It's to point us to the ideal. And then at the cross and the- But what is, what is, how do you determine, okay, see, you're going 100 miles an hour. So we're going to have to go like, we're going to go about 30 miles an hour just, just because you're bringing up some really key points. We have to understand the difference between training wheels and the ideal. What is the ideal? Um, Okay. (laughs) Right. When you talk about um, the Garden of Eden and the first um, imperatives to the first man and woman, they are not distinguished. Um, They are both supposed to be fruitful and multiply and um, fill the earth and subdue it. When did the distinctions come? And what do these, dis- what does, th- those are two, two questions I have. Yeah, so great questions. What is the ideal? What does Jesus say the law boils down to? It's love God, love your neighbor. And the whole law is designed to give us an, some guidelines for how you do that. You don't murder, you don't cheat, you don't lie about people. And then you get a lot of super specific laws, but what about this, what about that? But the danger that happens is if we look back at the law, for example, and we see an all-male priesthood, we can think that's the ideal. But even before there was an all-male priesthood, there was God saying, I'll make you a kingdom of priests. I will make kingdom. Why? That's not the end result. Then when we get to the New Testament, we see Peter saying, the priesthood of all believers. That's a male, it was a male thing in Exodus, et cetera, in the law, but it's not in the church. And in the eschaton, in Revelation, it talks about us being priests to our God, all of us. And so the first thing I think we have to do is try to strip down how much are we making this about men or women when it's about us embodied as men or women. And what I mean by that is a, a man as a priest is going to look different from a woman priest, but that doesn't mean they're choosing to act like a man or a woman. They can't help themselves, okay? So our focus should not be studying gender difference, gender difference. Let's find all the science and social history that's interesting, but not so that we can conform to it. What are we supposed to conform to? Jesus. Yeah, and so we can get totally our focus off by trying to figure out, oh, well, if women tend to be more nurturing, I guess the ideal is for women to be nurturing. Therefore, men don't really have to nurture, that's a woman's job, which is silly. Or you could say being gentle is a woman's job because more women by studies are gentle. See how off base that gets? Because the fruit of the spirit is gentleness. And so while all these studies about gender are really interesting and fascinating and they're full of revelation, they're full 
God made the world, they're not the ideal that we're supposed to pursue. What we're supposed to pursue is being like Christ, becoming. So, so I would say biblical manhood and womanhood is embodying joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, kindness in a female body or an intersex body. Like the body that God has given you, um, that's the body that you pursue Christ in. So, so just entitling this discussion, biblical manhood and womanhood is kind of a bait and switch because it's not, it's, it's not that men and women aren't distinct because we are, but what, what Christ does is frees us as men and women to pursue him to conform to his image in the bodies that he's given us. And sometimes even calls us to go against gender stereotypes because, let me give you an example. So in Jesus's time, it was considered very unmanly for anyone to look on your naked body or to do violence to you. It wasn't just an offense of person, it was a, an affront to your manhood. So for Jesus to choose to be nailed and shamed and be stripped for us meant that he sacrificed his man card for us. Well, Jesus is the ultimate man. He's the son of man. So mm -hmm. what that means is his culture didn't have a high enough view of manhood, okay, uh, mm. of, of biblical manhood. Because biblical manhood is, is what we're all called to do. We're all called to submit to our creator. We're all called to sacrifice for others. We're all called to put others first. We're all called to, if we're leading, the, it should be synonymous with being a servant. We should not be too good to wash poop off somebody's feet, <laughs> which our Lord did, right? Another <laughs> example, he did. Another example is in Paul's day, it was super manly to be a citizen. Not that you could not that you could do, you know, much about, I mean, you could buy your citizenship, some of you could, but you know, usually you're born with it. And that also meant nobody could look on you without your permission and nobody could do violence to you. And what does Paul do when he gets to Philippi? He gets arrested, he gets thrown in jail, he gets the stocks put on him and he doesn't say, hey, I'm a citizen until very late in the game. Until yes. we've all completely violated his rights. And then, oh, by the way, what? Yes. Because his priority was the gospel. And he wasn't going to appeal to the state for his rights. Right. He had a higher priority. I mean, he did. He did appeal to the state for his rights. But he also was willing to sacrifice his body, his citizenship, his status for the cause of Christ. He, he, he did both and. You're right. But Good qualification there. No problem. I would like, because this conversation is a confluence of both sex and gender, I would really appreciate if you could um, define the distinctions between sex and gender. So sex is our embodiment. It's male, female, it's biological, it's uh, chemical, it's hormonal. It's, it's all the things that are part of the physical world and physiological. 
gender is how we act as a result of our embodiment. It's acting out, it's being social as a result of those things. So gender, gender is something, it sounds like, that also interacts with the surrounding society? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so even how we dress though, for example, pink is considered a feminine color in America. In ancient Rome, yellow was the color for women. Uh, when I uh, met a pastor who was wearing a pastel pink watch in Kenya, he came, we, we had him over for a pastor's conference. And at the end of the day, he said, can you tell me why everybody is staring at this in a weird way? <laughs> well, probably, I mean, he had this very dark skinned man with his really big pink pastel watch. And so we're explaining that this is generally connected with being female. And he basically said, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And we said, you don't have associations with color? And he said, no, it's just a beautiful color in my mm. life. So that's what I mean by it being socially constructed. There are lots of things we do that are socially constructed. If I pull out a cake and put candles on it, that means something very different here than it means elsewhere. So, but some of these things are learned. So then I wouldn't bring that cake out on, on boss's day with candles all over it. Right. right? It would just, it wouldn't fit them up. There's nothing wrong with it. It just doesn't fit people's understanding of what those things mean. In that case, um, how, how do we, how can our hermeneutic, the way we read scripture, um, not have those, are we just, do we just need to make peace with the fact that when we are looking at the text as 20th, 21st century, people who have a specific geographical location, we're going to bring our social locations to the text. How, how do we get to the place where we can look at the text um, and look at it with our social location and still be able to, to rightly divide it and to apply it in a way that brings honor to God and flourishing to God's people. Is that a long question or what? I'm so sorry. That's the question to be asking ourselves. So we all bring our backgrounds to the text, but that's a beautiful thing. I mean, it's part of the, every tribe and nation that God loves. You know, the creation mandate in the garden was just the beginning. But you see a huge shift in the life of Jesus and John the Baptist and Paul and, and the early virgins in the church. Like there's a shift from biological multiplication to in the eschaton, we're not even going to be married and multiply, right? right? There's a shift that happens with Jesus Christ that is much, and, and the multiplication is make disciples, which right. we all do, but we do it very differently. And some of how we do it is we do study culture. Paul's a great example on Mars Hill. So if you go to Mars Hill and you can still go today to where he stood. And, and when I was there, I was really surprised to discover that the backdrop of where he was standing, he was literally looking at the Parthenon. Like it's mm -hmm. just right in his eye view. And when you look down there still- there's And what's just, the significance of that? 
What's the significance of him looking at the Parthenon? And he looks around and, and you expect Paul to go, y'all are believing a lot of falsehood. There is so much falsehood. There are demons here. That's not what he does. He said, I perceive that you're really religious. It's like he finds that Venn diagram to see something good. He quotes their own poets. Mm -hmm. He says, and you have an altar there to somebody you don't know. Let me tell you who he is. So some of it is we bring our cultural understanding, our embodiment, the lives that we have, the stories that we have. And those are God's stories that he's telling through us. So they're a beautiful thing. The challenge that happens for us is that when we focus on conforming to the wrong thing, if we focus on conforming the culture just to be winsome, sometimes we can go too far and we lose our gospel witness just because we just look like the culture. And sometimes we're called to be counterculture, cultural, and sometimes we're called to draw that Venn diagram and find the place. And all of that requires wisdom from the Holy Spirit to know, who am I supposed to be? And some, with some places you're gonna focus on this and some you're gonna do the opposite. So I think, I think it might be worth backing up and addressing a little bit of the gender confusion that happens today, which, which is totally legit. And what I mean by that is so often in a Christian context, when we talk about manhood and womanhood, what gets quoted is the verse out of the garden, which is he made them male and female. Yes. But he makes them male, female, and eunuch post-fall, okay? And so, and Jesus talks about some are born eunuchs, and we know that's born with XXY chromosomes. And, you know, we know about 2,500 to 4,500 Americans a year are born intersex. And so what that means is that uh, there isn't just male and female. Um, and right. so are, is everyone made in the image of God? Yes, they are. Um, but, but it's more complicated than just male and female as it was in the garden. Yes. Um, I'm not... I'm not sure how you would define eunuch um, or if you use the term eunuch synonymously with intersex. Yeah. We're, we're kind of getting into more technical um, terminology on the one hand and then using um, biblical language in the other. So I just want to be um, clear in terms. A good qualification. Uh, eunuch is a, was a pretty broad term as it's been used through the centuries, and intersect would be a, a subset of that um, that would be included in that. Um, Daniel probably was uh, a eunuch. Um, you, you know, the, the Ethiopian eunuch is showing up um, in Acts. And eunuchs, uh, my understanding, so my understanding of eunuchs is that they, they were castrated males, which I don't know if that so that that's one um, definition of eunuch that I am familiar with. And then intersex, we're talking about individuals who have both male and female genitalia. Is that correct? And well, and there's a spectrum of that. But so Jesus gave three categories, right? Some are born eunuchs, some are made eunuchs, which would be castration. Some make themselves eunuchs, and, and that could either be castrate themselves, or it could be just they commit to celibacy for the kingdom, um, as if as if they couldn't re, you know reproduce or or be married or whatever. Um, and so again, the the eunuch has a pretty broad 
meaning right. is the Lord exactly. it. But the fact that the Lord acknowledges this sexual minority, I think is really important. And the reason I bring it up is because this is an area where we are lacking humility and empathy in this conversation very often. Okay. Talk about that. There's male and female. And so just, you know, study what those are and conform to it and get on with it if you want to be biblical. Well, biblical understanding of this also means there's some medical mysteries we haven't completely solved. And there's a lot of stuff we don't understand that we're still investigating. And instead of being that person that quotes that Bible verse from the garden, maybe we should be the one that quotes Jesus in acknowledging that, uh, that we don't know everything and we need to have empathy. Here, the Ethiopian eunuch is thrilled as he's reading Isaiah because Isaiah, it's coming in a section that talks about, don't let the eunuch say, I'm a dry read. Basically, I'm worthless. Right. If you obey my Sabbath, like if you love me, I'll make you a name that's better than children. And this is, that's a gendered, uh, a gendered concern that he has about his body and the outworking of his body. And God is saying your behavior, again, should be focused on who you are, the conformity of loving God, loving what God values, that's what's going to give you a place uh, and a reward. And mm -hmm. so again, it wasn't go back and study being a eunuch. It was you're made in God's image and there's a promise for you if, you know, and then it's, it's connected with behavior and the behavior has to do with holiness. Yes, it, I, it has to do with worship and the pursuit of God. Which is, which is very, very much the, the, the call, the commissioning for both men and women. Um, the outworking of that, and then I'll start to take questions. If I see one question so far, two questions so far. But before we get to that, um, personally, I feel, I feel like, um, the biblical manhood and womanhood have been, um, or definitions, narrow definitions of biblical manhood and womanhood have been used um, to really erase or demean uh, my sisters, um, especially my sisters who are single, um, Yes. My sisters who are not wives and mothers, I've, and I feel like the Great Commission in the life of Jesus flies in the face of that kind of debasement. But we've, we've really um, done a great job of, of marginalizing some of the Lord's children in this way. And so I would like you to speak to our sisters uh, about um, their, their value and um, what that means for them as followers of Jesus, what that means for them um, as valued members of uh, churches, parachurch ministries, wherever they are. Can, can you speak to that? So a lot of this really comes out of my own journey. 
So as you know, and, and some of our listeners know that my husband and I had 10 years of infertility and pregnancy loss, and I was coming out of a very conservative denomination. And so I only had one view of what biblical women like. And when that wasn't happening for us, and in fact, our babies were dying, I had a spiritual crisis of who am I supposed to be? Here I am, I have a good marriage, ready to bring a child into a loving home. Why am I, am I not able to do the one thing I thought I was commanded to do? And that wired me to go back to the text and say, how much of, of what I picked up was Southern culture? How much of this was Christian bubble? How much of this is Christian subculture? And then I did a little international traveling and I saw churches in other places and I saw women in other places and I saw how badly the limiting of womanhood to marriage was not just, not just for, for singles, but for anybody working. Because you don't yeah. tell a woman in a hut, you have to stay in your hut all day with the kids while he goes down to the market and sells kumquats, right? It just it's doesn't work. work. The family would starve. If you did that, and, and actually that's not what Proverbs 31 describes. If anything, she is making it possible for him to do justice work. So she is bringing on all this income in a hundred different ways, she's so creative. They are a team. And so what, what I realized had happened to me was that I had been trying to seeking to conform to a, a view that I've been taught of biblical womanhood, but was not nearly big enough for the God that we worship. God's yes. design and desire for me was to be all that he had created me to be. And that meant for me to flourish. And if I couldn't flourish as a, as a mom, that didn't mean plan B. It meant, let's find what plan A was. It was the plan B, the, that was in my head, right? Yes. Obviously, this is God's plan A for me. So even though infertility wasn't part of the garden, so it's a result of the fall, it didn't mean I'd sinned. But it did mean that for me to find how I was going to flourish, I needed to stop fixating on babies and, and figure out who I was made to be and what I was made to be and what would glorify God. Part of that, Sharifa, was also going back to church history and finding out that, you know, in the Reformation, we emptied the nunneries. But before that, there was... <laughs> 1,500 years of single being better than married. So we like slump yeah. the pendulum the other way. But the whole idea of the church had this focus of, look, if we're going to be single in the eschaton, let's just go ahead now and be fully devoted to Christ. And what that meant for women was that if you're in a nunnery, you, you get to learn how to read, which you don't probably if you're going to be a mom. Like it's either or, it's not both and. Um, and especially pre-printing press. And, and, but the rich life of the mind is really only something that women have as part of life dedicated to God and vocationally. But we lost, with the Reformation, one of the things that we lost as Protestants was a vocation where singles could be supported and not wondering where, they're, where, not wonder where their income is coming from. They could just serve Jesus, serve the poor, care for the needs of the world, and not be fixated on how am I going to eat and how am I going to retire and who's going to support me when I retire if I don't have children. The church covered all that. And in fact, if you weren't in a nunnery, often older women were sort of adopting young vocational women and leaving their inheritance to them and basically saying, I'm going to make you live with me and I'll provide free housing for you. And I think we need to discover some of that again in, in 
uh, in our culture, I'm thinking in the West, we, we have an increasing number of single women, many of them wanting to do vocational ministry. We're not going to create nunneries anytime soon, but I think we need to rediscover the vocation of, of women uh, dedicated to ministry full time and, and help them make that possible without the worries and how are you going to survive later. Mm. It's been quite yeah. a journey. <laughs> yeah, it feels, it feels, I can, I can see the dearth of community, just the, the nuclear family is beautiful. It's wonderful. I'm not speaking against it. It's also one of like many coexisting um, systems of the body of Christ. It's not meant to replace um, friendships, community, um, church community, church brotherhood and sisterhood. And so it's just, you know, I mourn all that I'm missing out on because, because we haven't shored up um, my single brothers and sisters in the way where they know they can knock on my door at any time of day or I can knock on theirs, where there's not just, there's, there's a non-sexual relationship that happens among us because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Yes, absolutely. I mean, if you think about the metaphors for the church, it's family. And it's even, family. When, even when people say to Jesus, oh, your mom's here, your brothers are here. He's like, uh, who's my mother and brother? You're like, Lord, wow. <laughs> right? He's not saying she's not my mother. She's saying your view is too small for this community. And uh, I know that before Gary, my husband and I uh, adopted our daughter, uh, we became close friends with somebody we met on a mission trip who was the first assistant to the mayor in, in a city of Mexico. He had lost his father when he was three and his mother and grandmother had disowned him when he became a Christian. Now they, they later were reconciled, but here you had a, a young man who didn't have family and here we are and we didn't have a child. And so he became our son. And, you know, we helped him through seminary or we helped, you know, help find ways to get him through seminary and provided housing when we needed it. And when he got married, we were the parents of the groom and it met a need, not just for him, but for yes. us, we, yes. we needed each other. So part of the challenge of narrow view of biblical manhood and womanhood is it tends to focus very much on the nuclear family, which as you said, is beautiful, but it's not big enough. It's not big enough. And it's a very post-industrial revolution. It's, it's fading away as well. True. That's right. It's not an eternal, it's not an eternal relationship as, as beautiful and wonderful as it is. And as, as God blessed as it is, it is not, it has an expiration date. But my relationship with you and with my brothers and sisters has no expiration date. And with your husband as your brother, as your yeah. as your brothers, that has no expiration date. Yeah. Okay, I feel like I could talk to you and then it'll, people will be mad because they have good <laughs> questions. If the creation mandate is for men and women to reproduce, shouldn't everyone have biological children? Yeah, and that's where we have to go to the eschaton and say, Jen, the garden isn't enough, that the garden is just the beginning. And the idea is to fill the earth with worshipers. And you, you see a big shift with Jesus, John the Baptist, Paul, the early church and virginity. You see a big shift from physical reproduction to making disciples.
great question. Amy was saying, what does it truly mean to be fruitful and multiply individually together? And, and I think that we talked about that in terms of the, the switch that you just mentioned of emphasis that Jesus really ushers in, in himself um, yes. to the Great Commission. Okay, this is a, a public ministry question, I guess. It's how do you see women, how do you view women speaking in churches? So I think usually when that question gets asked, we need more fun question, which is, if we believe that man and woman were made to partner together, whether our churches are complementarian or egalitarian or whatever ever label you want, I've, I've known enough people in both camps to know that both sides would say in our churches, we are fixated on whether women can or can't preach, but we're still not at our church with a vision for how can we partner. Are our nurseries full of men and women so that children who don't have fathers or mothers see healthy brothers and sisters modeling what that looks like? Are our mission teams led by men and women who are modeling that you don't have to have creepy relationships with your brothers and sisters, that you can have healthy relationships? It is possible. The world says, oh, too much sex abuse. We've got to segregate everything. And the church mm -hmm. sometimes does that. That is not the solution in the church. The church is, no, 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 you need, a, you need to remember our metaphor. Our metaphor is we're family. You don't act that way with your brother, ew. Like it is learned, it is socialized. You can be taught not to think sexually about your brother or your sister. So even looking at who are our greeters? Are they men and women? When we have a end of service with an altar call, do we say uh, the men will come forward and if you wanna talk to one of the elders, they're or do we acknowledge that you might have people that feel completely uncomfortable talking to a man that they don't know? Mm -hmm. So we have men and women who are up here and would love to talk to you. We have men and women passing the plates. There are so many things that don't have anything to do with public speaking where we need to make a lot of progress of modeling what it looks like to have healthy male-female relationships. Let me just say briefly, though, I'm not trying to avoid the question, but it, it's a very Western question. When, again, when you go to most of the church, if there's not a pulpit, there's not a permanent seating, you're in a living room. And think about in your living room group, can a woman speak? Can she share what God is teaching her? Can she say, share a Bible verse that meant a lot to her? Yeah, most of the time, of course. That's what it seems to be described in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And there, there was an office and ordination for women in the church, and it's an office of widow, which later morphed into the office of deaconess, which actually had less authority. But early on, the office of widow, if you look at 1 Timothy 5, the qualifications for widow match the qualifications for an elder, the only difference being uh, instead of husband of one wife, it's wife of one husband. But even the section there on and having raised children, the early church understood that to mean a single woman having taken in orphans. They didn't see it as you had to have been married to meet that qualification. So some of this, we need to revisit church, but we also need to, to recognize that when we ask, can a woman be a senior pastor? We can also ask, can a man be a senior pastor? Where did that come from? And what, what I'm really um, fascinated by, is what the 
common denominator in the universal church is in, in the global church because I feel like that that is number one why we should not be thinking about church in isolation and, and worship in isolation. It's also why we should be in constant consultation and conversation with our brothers and sisters all over the world because we might find where our churches are more a reflection of our society than of the God that we serve. From dead Christians and live Christians, we need people from every nation that where there are Christians speaking to this conversation. Um, good question here. How does woman as helper fit into this conversation? How do we respond to women who say women's identity is helper, even if it's not subordinate, or role in life is helper based on Genesis 2, as if this is different from the man's role? So great question. Genesis 2 needs to be informed by 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul says it's true that woman came for man. A man comes through woman, and they all come from God, okay? So you can't have a man without a mama unless his name is Adam, right? right. And right. why was woman made for man? She was not made to be his junior assistant in the garden. She came because, because Adam was alone, and Adam was male and female, right? For Adam was male and female, and God put the Adam to sleep and pulled a woman out. And marriage is two becoming one, okay? I've never heard it said that way. Uh, Adam is I'm here trying to sound, trying to look casual. <laughs> Funny. I've never heard it described this way. Glenn Kreider has a good chapter on this in, in on Eve and Vindicating the Vixens. But anyway, so she was made because he's alone. And if you want a fiction, great example of this is Frankenstein, interestingly enough. The, the chapter on what it's like to be the only one of your kind and how lonely that is, is just brilliant, brilliantly handled in fiction that way. But so the Adam is alone after seeing F got a partner and the Buffalo got a partner. There's nobody for me. And then the aloneness is solved by a complimentary partner. And she is there to help his aloneness. And they, Adam together, are given the command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We get this idea that she's supposed to fill the earth with babies and he's supposed to do work. But that's, that's also very post-industrial revolution. When I go to the Orvieto Cathedral in, in Orvieto, Italy, that was constructed in the 14th century, they have friezes on the outside of this story. And they don't have Eve holding a baby. They have Eve holding a hoe, I mean, Adam holding a hoe and Eve holding a spindle for making wool. They perceived that Eve got a double curse. She was affected by the ground mm. and the pain in childbirth. And if you think of how many women have worked the ground and are still working the ground, the curse didn't just affect men's work. But again, in a post-industrial revolutionary society where the ideal is mom's at home while dad's in the factory, then he's work, she's babies. But that's a very Western late construct. It's really interesting, especially because you, you don't see Adama, you don't see the man and woman with babies until after the fall. Not that babies are after the fall. <laughs> right. But yeah. like, because they're not, but yeah. like, ain't no babies in Eden. 
right so so why would why would that be so presumed you know also this is a whole other thing but you can talk about what helper means because helper sounds it hits different yeah good point so we tend to think hamburger helper plumber's helper junior you know it, it's very subordinate but how many times do we say god help me when we pray to god help me we are not saying you're my junior flunky taking orders from me you're big and powerful and skilled and i need your help and that's the idea of helper here it's it's helper can mean somebody who's your assistant but that's never how it's used by moses or it's never how it's used in genesis it's never how it's used in the old testament most of the time all but two times it's god coming to help you know i lift up my eyes of the hills where does my help come from my azer is the lord so when the translators of the septuagint came along and that those were the folks who took the bible from hebrew into greek and so they as they're translating that gives us some insight into how the hebrews thought about these words they chose a word for help that was used it was contemporary for their time the surgeon who needed a skilled helper in a surgery in an area of expertise he didn't have okay mm. the skilled helper in an area of expertise he doesn't have that's the idea of woman is a strong ally she is not behind him on the bed She's up there with her shield on the battle, ready to take it on with him. And, you know, in, in Ephesians 6, who puts on their armor? That's not men. It's Christians. Christians. Right? We're in a battle, too. And for, to, to think that men should just go off in battle and we stay home and, you know, do nothing, that's just none of those metaphors are, appear to be what the biblical authors had in mind. And then if you look at how do the women help Paul? Well, Romans 16, I got coworkers and coworkers and Rufus's mom is like a mom to me, tell her hi. And, you know, you listen to key and, and Philippi, we tend to say, yeah, they weren't getting along and we miss, uh, Paul called them his coworkers. Assign me up to be called Paul's coworker. So yeah, we, even the word helper as a, as a flunky subordinate is a completely wrong understanding of what the biblical author had in mind there based on his use of the word elsewhere. Yes. And that's where hermeneutics really matter. It's a little word study there helps. Word studies do help. And then and they help you to cut through some of your own personal biases. So yes. The question is what books, resources are there that teach boys and girls and adults that not every opposite sex relationship has to be sexual or lead to romantic relationship. My stronger recommendation would let them let them see it at least once a week at church. Um, figure out ways to get men and women in your Sunday school classes, men and women in your youth groups, modeling healthy relationships, affirming one another. Not afraid to say, "Oh, I love what you did there." Um, at, at home, you know, me seeing my father do the laundry. And when we would go to church, my extroverted two degrees in engineering father going straight to the dishwasher during his spaghetti dinner. Um, that taught me way more than any book actually would have taught me. Of just, and it doesn't have to be your biological dad, it can be your church dad. But seeing he's a manly man, he's a camper, or he's whatever is manly, but he's also a sissy man by the world's definition. And he's not ashamed at all. Someone commented, 
Um, I love this discussion because it feels like the American church is on the cusp of reformation or death. Young people are just not having it and our pews will be empty in 10 years if we don't address gender, racial inequality, being single versus nuclear family emphasis. To their and, oh, sorry. You know, to their credit, they're, they're, they're recognizing that doesn't look very Jesus-y, right? And calling some of us to, you know, are pretty immersed in the Christian bubble to relook at, yeah. Thank you to everyone for joining us for today's event. Dr. Glan, thank you for sharing your expertise and insight. And please, I invite you all to look at our website, beyondordinarywomen.org, to browse our many videos, podcasts, and articles designed to prepare Christian leaders. Can you tell us where to find you online? Sure. Aspire, A-S-P-I-R-E, and the number two, aspire2.com. You'll see links to books. You'll see all kinds of blog posts slash rants. Um, Bible.org also has a women's blog, Engage, where I blog twice a month there, and usually I'm talking about topics related to this. Wonderful. And Rebecca wants to know if there are any resources that you can recommend that will help us to study this topic further. Well, <laughs> since you asked, this is coming out. Sanctified Sexuality, I'm the general editor of that, and uh, I don't get any money off of it, which is why I can plug it shamelessly. But I did a chapter in that book on gender, um, and it's basically uh, 25 theologians coming together, talking, uh, theologians and counselors, practitioners, talking about gender. Mark Yarhouse has a section in there on trans uh, sexuality. Uh, all just, all the hot topics, and I'm not an expert in them all, but I can curate uh, and so tried to pull them together with Dr. Gary Barnes at Dallas Seminary to provide that resource coming out this month. Excellent. This is a great way to end. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to the Beyond Ordinary Women podcast. You can find more podcasts and information about women in leadership by going to beyondordinarywomen.org. This podcast was produced by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries. Our production team includes Evelyn Babcock, Kay Daigle, Kay Halligan, Deborah Herring, Sharifa Stevens, and John Sparks. Theme music, Back in Stride by Don Miller, used by courtesy of Christine Miller.